So we are in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, and uh, we've looked at the loveless church, the persecuted church, and tonight we're looking at the compromising church. And honestly, this is probably one that people like to talk about a lot, uh, and I think it is because we love to look at other churches and find fault. Most of us don't like to look at our own church and find fault. Uh, but when you think of compromising, my mind immediately goes, maybe I'm the only judgmental person in here, so this doesn't apply to you, but I think of certain mainline denominations that have embraced uh, very liberal teachings and things that are contrary to the Word of God. I even think of our own uh, denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, and some of the liberal drift that I see in it. But when we come to this passage of Scripture, uh, hopefully you have there in front of you those notes. You have uh, some pictures of, of some of the architecture from uh, Pergamos. And um, if you were to go to Turkey today, uh, you could go and see um, some of these things. The uh, picture there on the top, as you can see, it's the city wall. You can see the elevation and the uh, exceptional position of this city. On the bottom there, you can see a picture of an amphitheater. Uh, it was the tallest and largest uh, known in the Roman Empire. It is estimated, this is just estimated, that 10,000 people could sit on the side of that hill. It was 120 feet. So if you got vertigo or got dizzy like I do, you would not want to make the track down because if you missed a step, you would just continue to fall. Uh, the next picture there you see beside it is some temple and other uh, ancient worship facilities, and we'll talk about those in just a little bit. And uh, so hopefully uh, those pictures will spark your interest, and you can go to Google Image and look at more of these images as well. And so we're going to just go ahead and read verses 12 through 17 tonight to get an overview of what the Word of God says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because, there, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the white stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. If you would pray with me. Father, we come tonight asking for clarity, asking for wisdom, and Lord, we just thank you for the wonderful privilege to gather together, to study your word, to enjoy um, your fellow believers, and tonight, Lord, I 
I just pray that you would work for your glory in every area, Lord, in the children and the youth and the ladies and in here tonight, Lord, that you would be magnified, glorified, and Lord, I ask that you would forgive me for anything in my heart and life that would be displeasing to you. And Lord, I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. And just tonight, to let you know, I know sometimes I don't uh, talk really slow, and sometimes I don't give you the answers well. So if you go to the back of that third page at the bottom, the answers are there. And so if you don't get them, you can have them. And so you're like, well, I'm just going to fill them in and sleep. That's your prerogative too. You wouldn't be the first or the last. Um, But what we need to know about this city, and we always have to be very careful, Uh, we don't want to get too bogged down in all that's going on, but if we don't, we miss the significance of why this letter was written to this city, to this group of people, and to what they were going through. And this would have been one of the most prosperous, one of the most dynamic cities in the Roman Empire. It is a city that had been thriving and flourishing even before the rise of the Roman Empire. You saw its height. It was easily defendable. It was right on the path of trade and and commerce, so it was well protected, and it was wealthy, and it had been used and had just truly thrived from an economical sense. But what also had happened was it became a focal point of pagan worship. Anytime you had a city that was elevated in uh, ancient times, it was usually used as a place of worship. Why? Because they thought it was closer to the heavens, closer to the gods as in plural. And so what happened in the days of the church was this became one of the centerpieces for emperor worship. And we looked last week also about the same thing, that they had embraced emperor worship, that the emperor was not just a man, but he was literally God on earth. And we looked last week about how the church was commended, right? Because they didn't let that in. They stood against that. They didn't let teachers sneak in that had that view. But yet in this city, who have a lot of the same struggles, they were not as on guard. They were more willing to allow things to enter into their church that should not have been there. And so when we think about our church today, and we think about the church in America today, we can look around and see a lot of that. A lot of the biggest television preachers in the world are heretics. I mean, I don't mean that we just disagree on little things. I mean, they are full-blown heretics. They deny things about Jesus. They deny things about who God is. And, and uh, the Bible tells us to have nothing to do with them. But yet, if you go to most Christian bookstores, there will be, in my opinion, more things from false teachers, usually, than you will have from solid biblical teachers. And so for me personally, I don't go to Christian bookstores. I don't go to any bookstores hardly, but, uh, but that's just something I struggle with because it's like if they don't have the discernment to look at this and see, then I don't want my money going there. I'd rather just buy it from someone else or get it in the library or something else. And so the struggle with compromise has always been the case. But I want to caution us tonight that we don't always see the faults in others and not deal with the faults in our own heart, our own theology, our own church. 
Our church has more than enough areas to serve and to work and to do that we don't have any other time to worry about anybody else. We literally have a wonderful mission field that we live in. Uh, we have wonderful ministries that are going on. We have more than that we can care for usually. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of almost 800 people call 10-mile home once a month at least and, and are shut-ins. And so there are more people than we can keep up with. But yet I find myself, if I'm honest, looking up the street going, what is wrong with those yo-yos? And the Lord has to deal with me. Jay, just focus where I have you. And so if you're taking notes tonight, we're just going to jump right in and let the Word do its job. Jesus is the one with all authority. Jesus is the one with all authority, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp, two-edged sword. And so we know that we can look back in different places and see this analogy, but knowing what was going on in this city is important to understand this. And as you can see there in your notes, that this would have been viewed as people in this city and people familiar with the Roman Empire, especially the early church, as someone who had the power over life and death. And in the Roman world, that was in the hands of the proconsul. You say, well, what's a proconsul? I'm glad you asked because I had to look it up too. It was the governor of a province in ancient Rome having much authority. He didn't have all authority because some authority rested in the emperor. But this man would have been able to say, you can be put to death, you can be spared, uh, you can be thrown in prison, you can be released, you can have all your property taken from you, or you can have it all restored to you. And so he is wanting them to think about this, that Jesus truly has that power. And we looked at it in the chapters before, right? He says over life and death and, and the beginning and the end. And he's just again repeating this in a different way so that each city understands it better. Each city can put what they think and what they believe to a visual. And so for us, there are analogies that we make that if you were in the middle of Nicaragua, it would not fit because their culture is different and what's going on is different. Think about someone who is uh, growing up in China and is part of the secret church and the struggles they have and the things that are different here and there. And so what John is doing through the leadership of the Holy Spirit is saying, I want you to think about how much authority this man has, that everything hands in his balance. He can do as he sees fit. But you need to remember that truly Jesus is that one. He truly is the one with power over life and death. Because he goes on and says, don't you remember there was someone that was put to death? And if you're a Christian, and we do not understand this, let's just, let's just put this out there tonight. None of us really understand what it would be like to stand on the courthouse lawn and watch a fellow believer murdered just for their faith. I mean, that is, that, I mean, we can talk about it, we can pray about it, but I cannot imagine if my children had to watch me be drug up on the square and executed because I was the pastor of this church, what that would do to them. And so he is saying that even though this man seems to have the power to end your life, 
and to take everything from you. Do not forget who you trust in. Don't forget who you rely in. Don't forget who sits on the throne of heaven. John writes about this in the book of John, chapter 11, in verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he may live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It is the simple, single most important thing, I think, for Christians to recognize when we think about our life and serving the Lord, that death has no hold on a believer. It has no control over us. Because if the world takes our life, the Bible says we gain it. Because absent from the body is present with the Lord. And so there always should be this understanding that yes, we love our family. Yes, we want to be faithful with the time that God has given us. But truly, what Satan uses as the ultimate object of fear, and it's what the world uses as the ultimate object of fear, Literally, we watched our country be gripped with that for uh, over two years, right? The fear of death. You can't go to church. You can't go to work. You can't do this, all of these things. But yet for the Christian, I know something, that the Lord is in control. And if I know Him, the Bible says He has went to prepare a place for me. And one of these days, He is going to come again and take me to that place. And so John is just wanting them to be reminded that yes, you might watch those that you love be persecuted. Yes, your family might lose loved ones for their faith, but don't forget they cannot touch what God has given you. Jesus says don't, and, uh, don't fear those who can kill the body. This flesh is just that. It's just a, it is just an outward skin of who you are, the soul, everything that makes you who you are. That's why we know that in the book of Paul's writing to the, to the church at Thessalonica that he says one of these days the dead in Christ will rise, right? And that body will be changed to a body that never wears out, that never grows old, that, that never suffers the things of this world. And so I'm going to serve the Lord faithful to the end knowing that God is the one who has my fate. God is the one who has my future. God is the one that has all things under His authority. And for them, this ties it back to, okay, this man is the ultimate authority in this empire when we see him, but Jesus is truly the ultimate authority in the kingdom that matters, in the kingdom to come. And so it's just a word of encouragement for someone in authority. Thoughts? Questions? All right. The second one. I only got four things tonight, so I'm hoping to get you out of here early, but no promises. Jesus is the one with all knowledge. Jesus is the one with all knowledge. Now, I know you've probably met a few people in this old world who thought they knew it all, and wanted to tell you that they knew it all, but Jesus truly is the one with all knowledge. Look what it says here in verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name 
and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. This has been a verse of a lot of contention because naturally you can think of people who want to worship Satan who would say this is where Satan's dwelling is, right? This is the throne of Satan. Uh, What we need to recognize here is uh, it is a city that was very much influenced by Satan. It was a place that had many temples and different things to false gods and pagans. And so while you can view it that way, I think it is better to view it as this is a city that was heavily influenced by the power of Satan. It was a city that was very much against the things of God. It was very much a thing that had embraced anything to worship other than God. And we need to remember that anything that is not the worship of God is either a worship of nothing or a worship of what? Demons. That's it. You can't have both. You say, well, Jake, I'm a, a Ouija board person. I'm an astrology person. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a whatever you are this month kind of thingy in the, I don't know what you call them, horoscopes. Listen, if the Lord is not giving you wisdom, you either are getting no wisdom or you are getting something that is demonic. You say, well, Jake, that's not popular. I don't care it is what it is. It's just that simple. And so while we don't run around acknowledging that everything that people worships is, is most of the time it's just a statue, it's just an idea, but there are things that are under the control of demonic forces. And so Christians, we have to worship Jesus. We have to worship according to the Scriptures because look what he says there. I know your works and where you dwell. He knows what is going on in your life and where you are. And I think this is another word of encouragement because these people are probably thinking, Lord, do you see us down here? Lord, do you know what we're going through? We're in the middle of the pagan land. I mean, if you can look there on that picture that I gave you, you can see the size of one of those pagan temples. And that hill would have been lined with them. And if you were to go to, uh, I cannot think of the museum in Germany today in Berlin, uh, they actually have one of these temples that they have excavated and have it in uh, Berlin. And so you can go and see it of its magnitude. Uh, some people say part of it's a replica because not all was salvageable. But anyway, that would have been the significance. This hill would have been covered with pagan temples, pagan worship. And so he says, in the middle of it, I know what you're going through. And I know where you are. And I think that's how Satan tries to convince us many times that God is, is so big and He's got so much that, that how can He worry about your problems? And how can He worry about what you're going through? I even feel that way sometimes when I pray and I, I ask for things and I think, Lord, I don't even know why I'm asking. There are so much worse that could be going on. Or there are so many other people that are worse than me. And so I think there's a healthy balance not making everything about you, but I think Satan uses that to say, you know what, your, your issue's not really that big. Your situation's not really that much. God can't put as much attention into your needs and wants, but yet the Bible tells us, right, that He knows the hair on our head, that He knows when the sparrow falls. I love that old song and I think, I think I can find Jamie or someone to sing it right. His eye is on the sparrow, right? And I know he 
watches me. And that's, I think that's what he's trying to remind them because he talks about death. He talks about them being faithful. But he says, I know. I know. You're not flying under the radar. You are not too small. And so he says works there. And I think this is important because they were faithful. They did not deny the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. They didn't compromise that this gospel is everything. And that is so important because in Matthew 10, the Bible says in verse 33, But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And if you've ever read anything about the early church, the early church really struggled with this. Because what would happen is Christians would be arrested. Some would die for their faith. But others would recant. They'd say, nope, I'm not a believer. I don't, I don't know this gospel. I, I'm not saved. I, I don't know these people. And they'd let them live. And then what would happen? Some of them were truly saved, realized they had done what was wrong, and tried to come back to the church. And so the church struggled with what do we do here, Right? How, how do we know if they're real or not real? Or how do we know if they didn't betray us? And, and many Christians, they would get spared the first time, but then they would be arrested again, and then they would die for their faith. But the early church struggled with this because it's like, well, how do we know? You, you denied it. Why do you want to come back now? Do you want the, the free handouts like in the book of Acts where everybody's sharing and selling their property? And, you know, you want the miracles, but you don't want Him. But yet he says, you were faithful. You did not waver. You were willing to stand. Also there we see that it, the dwelling, this city, would have been such a pagan place of worship. And so look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But even if our gospel, it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. He's talking about the influence of Satan, the influence of pagan worship, and all of these things. And that's talking about the God of this age is Satan. And so we know it's not God as in capital God, as in the God. It is it's just talking about Him, that He is the prince of the principalities of this age. And so God says, even though you're going through a lot, even though you're in a mess, I know you and I see you. Thoughts, questions? Yeah, so, yeah, so this has been a question that I've been getting a lot afterwards. And so there are a couple of different ways that we all view what the Bible says about those who reject Jesus, those who accept Jesus, how the Holy Spirit works. And so there are three main ways to view that. The first is this, that no one can come to God without the conviction and working of the Holy Spirit. All right, you don't wake up one morning and say, I need the Lord. Where things begin to differ is this. Does the Holy Spirit convict you and you repent and then God makes you alive? Or does God convict you, make you alive, regenerate you, 
and then you repent. Those are the two views, and there are two big views. And so while we agree on the fact that it's God alone who convicts and draws and deals with us, when you get into that second part of it, you will be able to find 25 verses on both spectrums that support that. And I actually have a bunch of those written down tonight. Because if you read Romans chapter 1, and it's not in your notes, Romans chapter 1 tells us that there is enough evidence in creation for people to know there is a God, for them to be accountable for God on the day of judgment. If you read verses 20 through 21 and 22, it goes on to talk about this, the evidence that anyone who believes... If you were to flip over in Philippians chapter 2, it says that it's God who works. In John 6 verse 44, no one comes to God without Him bringing us. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25, it's God who grants repentance. But yet in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says that Christ died once for all. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4 through 6, Titus chapter 2, it talks about the fact that God desires for all to be saved. And so, whatever you believe, I personally believe, this is my personal belief, that the Holy Spirit at some point convicts every person. That's why in the book of Proverbs it says, believe while the time is still possible. All right? That you can miss it. That's what it says in Proverbs 23, I believe. Now, others would say that's not right. That the Lord only truly calls those that are going to be saved. That's another view. And you will be able to find more Scripture than you can argue on both of those, all right? And so that's where you and I have to to fall on. No one wakes up and says, I need the Lord. It is all the Lord's initiating. I think there are too many verses, though, that talk about do not quench the Spirit, do not grieve the Spirit, don't harden yourselves, but yet you will be able to find other verses that say God hardens the heart. And so what I want you to hear is, The church has argued since the beginning, all right? You study the Scripture, find out what you believe, and just be thankful that the Lord sent Jesus into the world to seek and save that which is lost. Yeah. First Timothy 2. Yeah, and I have all these notes too if you'd like. Uh, Titus 2. Titus 2, 11 and 12, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6. So Romans 3 tells us, right, that no one seeks God, right? There are none on our own. So what he's telling them here is that the Lord is at work in this situation. But yet Satan is at work as well. And so what we see here is that only Jesus has all knowledge. And um, so because every time we're like, now I want to know what this last meaning says. So like I said, I've got lots and lots more verses. Deuteronomy 4, Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33, 2 Kings 22. But anyway, I have those if you would like them. (laughs) So any other questions? All right, third thing, God's Word is always the standard. God's Word is always 
the standard. Look what it says in verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. And we talked a little bit about this in previous weeks, and so we won't get into it too much. But if you're not familiar with Balaam, you can turn over to the book of Numbers, chapter 22 through 24, and you can see this story about all that had went on and how this false prophet had tried uh, to curse the nation of Israel as they were uh, marching on. And uh, we know the donkey and the angel and, and uh, all of those things. But what ends up happening is, if you're familiar with that story, uh, that they end up not falling at first, but then eventually, uh, if you see your notes there, uh, the false prophet at king first seemed to fail in their direct attempts to curse Israelites. But later, however, they succeeded in leading the people of God astray indirectly by idolatry and immorality. And when you think about it, most of us, if someone walked up and said, I'm from Satan and I'd like to talk to you, we're going to think, man, you're a wacko, Right? I don't want to hear that. Or if someone stood up in front of the church the Sunday they joined and said, I have every intent of splitting this church wide open. We'd all be like, wait, what, what, what? That, don't, that don't sound right. Most of us do very well when we know it's coming. It is when it indirectly sneaks in that we don't see it coming. And so we can look at that. But what we see here from the Nicolaitans, and there's just a couple things. What did God have against this church? Because they had endured persecution. They were willing to die for their faith. But while the last church that we looked at, that they had tested those who say they are apostles and are not, this church didn't. This church says, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be as vigilant about it. Maybe we don't know why. We don't know if they were so accustomed to pagan teaching that, that they were more open to hearing it. We don't know if they were in a culture where everyone claimed to be some kind of a prophet from God and so uh, they just they accepted it. But whatever the reason, it is a warning to us. And the two things that we know that they were probably doing were, in your notes you see it, telling them that their conscience didn't matter. That even if your conscience convicts you of something, you know, it's not a big deal. Conscience can't be trusted. But yet we know that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in verse 9, But beware, lest this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. They would have been saying, you know what, it's just food. I mean, think about the amount of food that they would have been able to buy cheap after the pagan temples had used it for sacrifice. And so Christians were probably struggling with this. No, we don't want to eat it because it used to be there, just like 1 Corinthians struggled back and forth. And they were saying, no, don't you worry about it. Don't worry about that new Christian if it bothers them. You know, just do it. It's all about getting it on the cheap, right? You don't worry about that. And Paul said, no, right? If your conscience bothers you or if your conscience gives you the liberty to do something, you ought to be mindful of other believers, 
You ought to be mindful of new Christians, not causing them to stumble. And so think about today's church. That's the same thing. If I've heard it one time, I've heard it a thousand times since I've been the pastor here. Well, I just don't think it's wrong. Well, I think it's wrong and you're causing me to stumble. How's that, right? How many times I've heard someone say, well, this, you know, this could... What I can tell you is this. I have met with tons and tons and tons of people who were raised in the church. Their parents were one way at church and another way at home. You will never harm your children and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord by being above reproach. If it could be wrong in our house, we're just not going to do it. If it could be bad, we're not even going to touch it. We're just going to avoid it because why? I don't want my kids trying it and it being something that they're addicted to, something that they cannot control. Some of those things that fit into that category, and I'll just wade right in because, like I always say, I've already ate. I'm ready to go, all right? I think of things like gambling. You might be able to go cast your lots in the Old Testament, but it might be something that destroys your children. They can't stop. They just keep pulling the lever. Just keep pulling the lever. They keep pulling the lever. For you, might be smoking. Not, I don't think smoking's a sin or it sends you to hell. I don't know why you want to smell like you've been there, but that's yours. You might be able to smoke one or two and it not be a big deal, but yet that might be something that affects your child's health and causes their cancer. The list could go on and on and on and on, and I'll just wade into a few more because everybody deserves to be offended at some point. <laughs> Lightly. I think about the shows that you watch. You say, Jake, we don't watch pornography. We would never, ever, ever watch like that in front of our children. You watch anything that's got homosexual couples kissing on it, holding hands on it, being accepted by the world that you live in? You say, Jake, you're metal, and I got one more. Don't worry. How you manage your money. Do your children see that everything that God has given you is that? God's given it to you. I do not think it's wrong to have a boat and a camper and a fuller. None of those things. I don't think that's wrong. I think as long as you invite me to use it. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I hate the water and I hate fun. <laughs> One of the most embarrassing stories of my life, a couple of years ago, Brian and Stacy Henderson and the Lassiters and some family said, We'll all go down on that river. Uh, I don't know what the one is down there to the south of us. And we'll ride jet skis all day. And I was, no, not going to happen. Fat people on jet skis doesn't work well. And Brian said something like, well, I'm going, so we'll be in good shape, you know. So we went. We get right in front of Cave and Rock. That, that's what it's called, right, where all the people can go in. I mean, there are people everywhere, everywhere. And the group that we're with wants to stop right there. They don't want to stop right there. Me and my wife, four of their jet skis, and there's a pontoon boat coming full of people. They're like, we're going to stop right here. I'm like, sure, I don't, no big deal. I stopped. But I went over. Dumped that jet ski in front of everybody. The people on the bank are laughing. They're snapping pictures. The people in the pontoon boat are laughing. And something happens. I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, let me go. I'm just going to unplug it, and I'm going down. <laughs> They're like, you got to move. I'm like, I'm not swimming in the jet ski. I'm like, I'll just hold on, and you pull me over there. I said, no, don't grab the back of the jet ski. 
tear your hand off. And so, I don't know, it was humiliating. I had the key. They had to go wait it and push it over. And I thought, that day, no more fun for this guy. No more fun. But it was a wonderful time for everyone else. It was a time of relaxation. And Erica fixed a wonderful meal that evening. And that's where my heart truly lies, is the food. But you need to be so careful that you teach your children about tithing, about giving, about supporting missions. Uh, when we, when my, our oldest one was younger and we still, uh, we still gave weekly, now we just give monthly, we used to bring her in and we explained to her as we put it in the plate, right, that this is why we're doing it and this is what we're doing and, and et cetera. And so now we, we explain it to them because we send it through the bank thingy or whatever. So, but we, you need to teach them. This is what the Bible says about giving. This is what the Bible says about managing your money. This is what the Bible says about being a slave to the lender. Because that might not necessarily be sin, but I'm telling you what, financial problems will ruin a marriage. They will ruin a, a family. They will bring more grief and heartache than just about anything. And so we should be above reproach. The second thing he talked about in this, and I'll stop and give you a chance to argue with me in just a minute, no, is sexual immorality. The second thing they were probably teaching was Paul said, right, don't go to those places in 1 Corinthians. Don't, don't, I know that that was a part of pagan worship. I mean, these pagan temples were known as houses of prostitution. And it was sold as it is a religious experience. And so they were probably teaching that it's not really a sin to break your marriage vows as long as it's done in the name of religion. That must have been what Jimmy Swaggart was doing. I don't know. But anyway, see, right there in that moment, it just comes out before I... But that's what they would have been teaching, that it's okay. Don't, don't worry about your commitment to your spouse. You can go to these temples and you can partake in this. But listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or the idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner not even to eat with such a person. Paul said, you ought to hang out with lost people from time to time. There's nothing wrong with, with uh, working with someone that's not a Christian, that, that you have to be very careful. We know that. But what he's saying is when someone claims to be a believer, they are held to a higher standard. And especially when he's talking about sins of a sexual nature. Now, if you see anything in the church today, you'll know that that is not the case you will notice that almost every mainline denomination is fighting right now over what to do with sexual sins. Do we let them be clergy? Do we not let them be clergy? Do we ordain them? Do we not ordain them? Do we do weddings? Do we not do weddings? But Paul said, I don't care if it's in the name of religion or pleasure, Christians should have nothing to do with it. And so just like the children of Israel were led astray by immorality and idolatry, the same thing was happening to the church. They were willing to stand when their life was on the line for Jesus. 
push comes to shove, they're not going to bend. But the rest of the time, if I can have just a little bit in the world and a little bit in the church, that's where I want to live. And John says that cannot happen. Jesus is saying that cannot happen. And he warns them extremely severely. Questions? Well, this is what I was hoping. No, I'm just kidding. Because what happens when you read a verse like 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11, people are like, well, I don't want to judge. I don't want to judge, right? Judge not lest you be judged. So what do we do with that? What do we do with a, when a Christian, a person who claims Jesus, is living out these ways? Now, I'm not saying they don't struggle with them. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying when someone willfully lives this way, openly and without fear of consequence, what is the church to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Matthew chapter 18, right, is where we're given that... Yeah, the, it comes from 1 Corinthians 5, but, but we're given the prescription in Matthew chapter 18, right? Go to your brother. It's not an accident that word for brother is what we see here in 1 Corinthians 5, your brother. Now, let's be honest. If you wake up in the morning and say, I'm just looking for a fellow 10 mile that I can go talk to about their faults, your heart's wrong. If that's how you wake up in the morning, boy, I just can't wait to get to church on Sunday because I got a list of Jake's faults. Get in line, all right? But when you and I love someone and we watch them on a path to self-destruction, it is our job to love them enough to warn them. And I would say, if the church has failed in one thing more than anything else, it's this. Sometimes people will say, well, Jake, if you talk to them, they'll just go to church somewhere else. Okay. But do you know how much they give or how important they are? But, Jake, you just better not bring it up. It is what it is. Why? Because if you love me enough and really care about me, you should want what is best for me. And sin never adds to our life. Sin always destroys, it always divides, it always corrupts. The Bible says if we take one and they don't listen, we're to do what? Put it on Facebook. Just, just blast it out there. Just get it out there in the open, right? No, we're to pray and then we're to take two or three people with us and just sit down with us. And if you're new to 10 Mile, um, that is why um, when there are meetings that are confrontational here, uh, there is always a deacon with me. So it's not a Jake said, they said. It's always this person said, this person said, and there was someone else in there. Um, I think Dave's in here. Poor Dave Crane has sat through more of those meetings the last two years than anyone should have to. And, uh, but it's why? Because it's not just I think, you think. It's what actually was said, what actually was recorded, what actually transpired. Does that mean that we agree? Absolutely not, Right? Because you can have one opinion, I can have one opinion, and someone else just listen. But yet it's the only way to do it biblically. It protects the vulnerable. It protects the accused. It gives us what I think is the biblical picture for righting wrongs. 
And then if you're familiar with that passage of Scripture, the third part of that is you bring it to the whole church. Now, I know, Monica, I think you were a part of looking at those old records. Pat, maybe. What was it, the 40s, the 50s, maybe was the last time some of that stuff was done, or maybe before that. And, I mean, it was even more serious. I mean, it was like some stuff that we would never think about, right? Do you remember what some of those were? Probably all the list of stuff I just said. <laughs> No. What we don't think is yeah. Horse racing. Dancing. Not being in fellowship with your brothers. So, I mean, it used to happen. But I can't imagine bringing everybody that skipped church up in front of the church. Like, they've been gone a month. They're not involved in fellowship. And I don't know how long it was. Absolutely. But yet, you, you know, should also be careful not to be the one to cast the first stone. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's two extremes, right? Probably back in the day, the dancing thing was probably a little much. While I struggle with non-married people dancing, that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day, all right? But this pendulum has swung from one extreme to what? The other. Right, that it that it can't happen, that it, it never happens, and so I think we just have to be very careful in how we allow our lives to be lived. And when God gives us an opportunity to speak truth into someone's life, to speak it in love, to really care about people enough, when they're telling us a story, it's okay to say, "Is that really how that went down? Are you sure that's what happened?" It won't make you popular, I can promise you that. But it will, I think, honor the Lord. Last thing, and I'll be done. And then, like I said, God leaves the decision up to the church. God leaves the decision up to the church. Repent, or else I will come to you. Don't miss this. There is very significance. Quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. I want you to see there that he says he's coming quickly to you and is going to fight amongst them. This is very important in this passage of Scripture. Because what we see in this church was there were those who were faithful and those who were unfaithful. And while the Lord was coming to deal with this church quickly, He was not coming to fight against the who? The faithful. And even when church is not perfect, and it's not, even when you go through seasons when it's hard to come, it's hard to forgive, it's hard to be involved, someone's hurt you, the preacher said something on Wednesday night that offended you, don't become bitter. Don't let sin creep into your life because God fights for us even when it gets difficult. He literally is telling them, I am not going to come and fight against you, but I am going to come and work against those in the church who are not of you. 
And that's important. We know the Bible tells us that they went out from us so that it was manifest that they were not of us. So sometimes the Lord separates congregations because there's believers and non-believers. Sometimes the church is separated because God wants to reach other people groups and we won't go on mission, I believe. But what we see from this passage of Scripture is the distinction between you and them. And when I think of the Lord working in this church, I want to be a part of the you and not the them. I want the Lord to use me to bless others, uh, to be ministering to others. I don't want the Lord coming to fight against me. That's what it says. And fight who? Against them. Withstand them. To stop them. That's why when we pray for our church, we pray that Satan would bind those who are trying to harm it. Right? God, send us broken and hurting people, but protect us from those who mean to do the church harm. In Matthew 13, Jesus uh, is explaining the parable of the weeds and the tares, and we just don't have time to, to spend a lot of time on it. And He explains how it's going to be at the end of time that He is going to separate out the true believers from the false believers. He knows who they are. He knows which team they fight for. And He talks about that, and you can read that. But the last thing there I want to show you is the white stone and the hidden manna, because that for us kind of is different. But really, these are um, explanations of eternal life. And so the hidden, um, the hidden manna uh, would have been um, this idea that there was manna in the ark that would have never gone bad. And when the Messiah comes, uh, you can read there from that Jewish tradition, tradition held that the manna had been miraculously preserved and would be multiplied to feed God's people. In the ancient pagan world, special white stones were often used as admission tickets for public festivals. And so if you think about it, right, Jesus is the bread of life, right? We have to have Him. And then if you think about the white stone, our names have to be known by Him. And He is the only way, right? Acts 2, verse 42, right? There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And so we see this, that if we will endure in the faith, if we will live for the Lord, and if we will repent we will inherit eternal life. And that's what he says in each of these, if you remember, right? But it's different for each one. The tree of life was the loveless church. If you go back to uh, the, the persecuted church, it was the fact that he says, who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Just like the introduction was specific for that city, the conclusion is specific for that city. Because why? Festivals... Pagan meals would have been what was known by them. And so God says, is, hey, you could all eat all the pagan meals you want, but that ain't going to get you there, right? You have to have the bread of life, right? You can, you can take these tickets and get into all these pagan shows and pagan festivals, but there's only one, one way that you can get into heaven, and that is the Lord has to know your name, right? He is the one who writes it in the Lamb's book of life. And so He's just reminding them that, one, He is with them, he knows their struggles. He knows what they're fighting against. But yet don't lose heart because if we'll repent and seek Him, then He will take care of it all. And so, like I said, i got ten minutes, so I tried to get through it as quick as possible. There is. 
Yes. So if you look there in verse 17, And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one except him who receives it. Now, there are a lot of different opinions on what it could be, but I don't think any of them are really very good. (laughs) You know, so I think the exception to that is really the stone itself and what it was symbolic of in the culture that they lived in. Um, But it could be something different. Well, I think one, all of these letters are written to specific churches, but have applications for each and every one of us, yes. Hmm. What do you think about that he will, he says he'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth? So I think it's a reference back to the sharp two-edged sword. I think you also see in other places where it has him depicted them. And I think the sword is, is always used with the idea of the cutting, right? The Word of God. I think that's how we fight our battles. I think you could even tie that back that how do we fought, fight false teachers? The Word of God, right? And how is, is the Lord going to fight? I don't know. I mean, do I like to think the Lord's going to smite all my enemies and move them out of my way? Yes, sometimes I like to think that. Um, but I also think, though, the Lord, sometimes the Lord uses conviction. Sometimes the Lord uses accountability. I, I think that is just a dangerous place to think about that the Lord literally will fight against the church that compromises, not the whole, but us. And so that's why people will say, well, Jake, what, if I, what do I do if I'm in a dead church? Or what, if I, what do I do if I'm in a church that's maybe not exactly like I would like for it to be? My answer is always be faithful. You say, well, tell them to come here. They might not. No, no, it's not always a good advice, all right? Be faithful. Be faithful where God has you. And he might say, come out of that. Or he might be using you to bring the change about that you need, that the church needs. You might be the perfect person that God uses to, to work. So I, don't, I think there's a lot that could be there. Um, but I think it is a separation for sure. The sword always separates. It divides. Uh, and so, it can be, yes. You know, I, before I even put the page, I was thinking about the week of prayers, but also the other one would be uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Mm-hmm. Would be one thing that separates out of the church. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I like to think that it's not my job to fight the Lord's battles. It's not my job to fight my own battles, right? We wait upon the Lord. And so I think this could absolutely be to them who are struggling with that same issue I talked about, about people who had denied the faith and then came back to the faith, that, that maybe that's they're trying to... All you can do is take people at their word, right? If someone professes Christ as the Lord and Savior of their life, I've baptized 260-some people, and bunches of them are not anywhere to be found. I can't control that, right? I, I hate that, and, and I would chase them down and make them feel awkward as much as I could if I thought it would get them back to church. But that, that's only something the Lord can do. And so I think that's all we can do. It's kind of like when someone apologizes. All I can do is believe them and then give them a second chance. And I think that's the same mindset that we see here. So I think it could mean a lot of things, but I think it should be a warning that 
God's church is a serious business, and He loves it, and He died for us, and He wants to use His church in a broken and lost world. Nothing against evangelists or TV preachers or anything, but I believe the way the Lord wants to work in the world today is through the local church. I'd rather listen to David Jeremiah. I will agree with you. I'd rather listen to Robert Jeffers of First Baptist Dallas. Uh, You list most of them, and I'd rather listen to them. Um, But there's just something about the local church that is special, that it is significant, and the Lord wants us to be involved in it and to be doing what He's asked us to do until He comes again. So I don't know if I answered that or not. I think I just rambled. I usually just ramble. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, we have a lot of people that watch online. Yeah. Yeah. So the warnings, the encouragement, it is, it is something I hope that we'll all think about because I want to be a part of a church that God blesses and that God uses, especially I think it's fitting that as we start uh, as a time of, of, of hopefully revival, the Lord revives us and has a word for us that uh, this coming week that, um, I know everybody wants experiences, and revivals are twofold if you don't know that. One, it's the spiritual aspect of the service and the move of God and what He does in our hearts and life. But it also leads from that into the action part of it. Right on the day of Pentecost, they had a great outpouring of the Spirit, right? They're speaking in unknown languages or known languages to other people. And then at some point, God says, you got to go. You've got to go into all the world. You've got to be dispersed. You can't just sit here and soak it in forever. And so whether your feelings on the Asbury Revival are positive or negative, I think it's the same thing. If God meets for a season with you, eventually He's going to send you out. It's not just about the meeting. It's about meeting and hearing from Him and then going. Did someone have their hand up or was that just... I'm seeing things. That's possible. I haven't had any pizza yet, so I'm longing for the pizza. I had one piece. I shouldn't say that. Any other questions? I know what you're saying. Are we ever going to get to chapter 4 where we get to start seeing all the crazy stuff? Yes. But I personally believe chapters 4 through 19 don't really affect us much because I'm going to be in heaven. So... uh, these affect us more, even though they're not always as interesting. Uh-huh. Oh, but there's lots of questions. Yes, lots of questions. So, anything else before we close?